Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. It's the Bomber Brothers Podcast with Ryan and Sean Chichester. Swung on and driven to deep left. For the line, she is gone. Aaron Judge lined one right down the line. Swung on and lined a right center field. It is a base hit. Grounding third, scoring kind of from left off. And the Yankees win the ball game with two in the bottom of the ninth. Hit in the air to left center. It is high. It is far. It is gone. It's a grand slam. Oh, a Stantonian home run. Talking all things Yankees baseball. All right, welcome everybody. We've got a special episode of the Bomber Brothers podcast. Sean and Ryan reacting to the captain along with Sweeney Murdy of WFAN, who if you were watching the captain last night uh, on Thursday, episodes three and four aired, we saw Sweeney's face a bunch of times during that during the uh, two episodes. So Sweeney, thanks for coming on and talking with us. I know you've obviously talked to Randy during the filming of it, but thanks for talking to us as well after the fact. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me, guys. How you doing? We're doing well. I, I'm I'm really excited for what's to come. I think these were easily the two best episodes so far. I know there have only been four to date, but I, I thought episode one was excellent. Episode two, like Sean and I talked about last week, was a little bit more of just like a rehash of the glory days of the dynasty and a lot of you know montages and highlights, which are great for us, not as much for lesser more casual Yankee or baseball fans but I think I think uh, this was right in in the wheelhouse of of those kind of fans you had everything from you know on the field drama with the 2003 ALCS off the field drama with going in depth on the A-Rod and Jeter feud with the uh, with the Esquire article that kind of started their rift I think there was a bunch of really fantastic aspects of these two episodes that should have people super excited for the final three. Yeah, it's uh, I got a chance. I didn't get a chance to watch them last night. I, uh, you know, the Yankees were playing last night, so I didn't see them. I saw a little bit of it as I was falling asleep and coming home, but I'd seen them previously. Uh, I've seen the first five episodes in all uh, so far. Uh, there's seven. I have not seen the last two, but I got some previews before uh, it came out. Um, and so I didn't know. Well, they're not fresh in my mind. I have seen three and four. The, um, 
I, I think the thing that kind of sticks out to me is that recognizing that, you know, there are still, if you're, and I don't even know how old you guys are, but I'm thinking, you know, if you're like a 30 year old Yankees fan, there's a lot of this stuff that you don't remember very well, probably, or maybe even at all, because you know, you're talking about stuff that happened 25 plus years ago in some of these cases. So um, I think it's interesting to look back on this with that perspective and that, you know, it's, it's very fresh in my mind still. I lived through it as an adult. And now you're kind of looking back and kind of showing it again to people who might not know it as well. So I think that's what, you know, I've had people ask me like what I'm learning about Derek Jeter. Like I'm learning some things, but I'm also like looking at a lot of things I already knew because I was, you know, in, I was in depth with all that stuff for so long. So, but it's interesting to look back on it with perspective as opposed to going at, through it in the moment and uh, that's what i'm kind of uh, enjoying getting the chance to see through now so actually sweeney that was one thing i was really curious to ask you about because they they cover the fight that the yankees had with the mariners in the 1999 season where jeter and, and a rod kind of palled around and um just for perspective i think i was in late middle school at that time ryan i know you were a little bit younger but i do remember that being a big deal and i i you know, just being part of the kind of the fabric of New York sports talk radio at the time. And what, what was the fan reaction to like, I, you know, they said it was a big deal, but as a kid, you don't turn on Jeter. Jeter's your, your guy, but what was it like more throughout the city at that time? Where did you feel like people were taking a side of like against Jeter for Jeter at the time? Cause I remember that being a huge deal at the time. I, I don't remember anybody really ever taking sides against Derek Jeter. Um, I think that like, if I remember right, like the biggest issue about the fight was that it was causing some sort of concern inside the clubhouse because of the Chad Curtis thing. Um, you know, I think it would have gone away fairly easily and quickly if it hadn't been for the Curtis reaction, because now it's something that's affecting the team. And it's, you know, and I think the guys even said, I did catch part of this, this part last night where the guys even said, like, now it's become a distraction in the clubhouse where people are asking you about it. Like, otherwise, it probably goes away pretty quick. Because remember, this also happened, this happened in Seattle, right? So it happens at like, you know, midnight East Coast time. And it's, you know, you're talking about it 20 plus years ago. It's not like you're finding clips on Twitter the next morning. You know, it's, it's going away relatively easily, um, I think if it wasn't for the internal stuff. And I think that's what, you know, Jeter and Tino were trying to tell you uh, as, as they were kind of going through that part of it uh, last night. So um, I, I don't, I don't think it lingered. I don't think there was, I don't think there was a lot of things there. There were not a lot of things that made people turn on Derek Jeter, even like Yankee fans. I think rarely, I don't think, I don't, I can't remember one that made, like a lot of Yankee fans want to turn on, on Derek Jeter, even, even in a moment like that in a fight, which I think they kind of described it as like, you're, you're on the outskirts, you know, you're not, you're not mixing it up. If you're not mixing it up, like you're kind of like, there's, you know, you know how baseball fights are. It's uh it's just kind of a different scene. Yeah. I, I think you, you, I mean, he had such an ability to just kind of go through stuff and it, it, it didn't linger. Like you said, like, Ryan, I don't know that you can tell me, I don't know if you remember the Wells thing in 98 where he, like that was a story and it went away really quickly. And the same thing in, in, in 99, he just had a really good ability to move past stuff. And I think that's kind of why, uh, as at least as I'm watching and I'm like, Oh yeah, I remember that. I'll, I'll, let me, let me tell you this though. Um, like 
in his 20 years, there were there were a number of brawls. There were a number of fights. I don't ever remember seeing him in the middle of anything, you know, like like throwing fists. I mean, you know, you, you, they showed the one with the Orioles 98, you know, you know, that Daryl Strawberry jumping in there, you know, like there's a there's a there's a lot of fights. You know, I've never seen him mixing it up. And like, is that a bad thing? I don't know. Um, you know, I think, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think I would want, you know, your star player in the middle of all those, you know, breaking, you know, breaking bones, maybe <laughs> doing something. Uh, I think, uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't, he wasn't one who wanted to fight. And I, I don't see anything really wrong with that. You're, you know, most of the time you got two guys um, really going at it, maybe three or four others jumping in and everyone else is trying to pull people off and, you know, eventually trying to stop the fight. And it appeared like that's what he was always trying to do. Yeah. And he was one of many hyped Yankee prospects from the early nineties. Another one of them was Brian Taylor and his career ended because he got into a fight, not in a baseball brawl setting, but so you don't know how his previous experience affects on how he wants to handle things. I think he's made it clear that a lot of things that start these brawls bothered him. I mean, he talked a lot about Roger Clemens coming to the Yankees in 99 and their relationship before they became teammates because of how often he threw in on, on Jeter. I think that was another cool uh, storyline to relive for me. You know, I was nine years old in 1999, so I didn't remember it too well, but a lot of good stuff about them going into the batting uh, batter's box with catcher's gear on as a joke to kind of break the ice. So it seems like, it seems like stuff did bother Jeter, but once it became, you know, a common goal of winning a game and you guys were teammates, he was kind of willing to just put it aside. But it kind of like this too, I'm just looking it up now. He got hit 170 times in his career. Do you ever remember seeing him charge a mound? Like, no. He, he might like, I know he didn't get like getting hit by pitches, but you know, he also didn't take it to that next level of charging the mound. And I'm sure there were plenty of times where he thought it was done on purpose. Like, like, you know, the idea of talking about Clemens and I think, you know, Pedro one time uh, when he hit uh, Soriano and Jeter on like back-to-back pitches, basically. Um, I think that was, 2003 or four um well it couldn't have been four um yeah the um i think i i I, you know he didn't enjoy it but he never also never took it to like like competing was how he basically handled it it was not about fighting yeah that that's a good there was never a I, I don't remember anyway, after Jeter getting hit, one of the pitchers retaliating against the other team where it was a, at least in a position where you were like, we really couldn't afford the bait. It was about winning, right? He wasn't, wasn't about getting back at the other team in any, in any other way. And he kind of covers that in, in, in the documentary where he says, you know, like he was, he said something about Alex Rodriguez. He said he was statistically much better of a player, but Jeter says I was the better winner. Paraphrasing. Okay. Well, I'm, 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 yeah, this is, I cared about winning. Is what you basically know. Yeah, and and I think uh, there was uh, the Jeter A Rod stuff we can talk about forever. I mean, the documentary does a great job with it. Episode three starts out with like the audio of that interview, Esquire interview, which I feel like kind of puts it even more into perspective. It was really odd. Like they were kind of casually talking about Jeter, and A Rod was just praising him so much, and then and then the interviewer just says, "Oh, you know, how is his?" characteristics on a team and then he goes right into that quote it was it was kind of a 
a bizarre shift and uh, yeah, obviously change their relationship forever. They go into it in great detail and in these in these two episodes. So the point where you even hear A-Rod say, maybe it would have been better for both of us if I did wind up in Boston. It was kind of interesting to hear that and think of, wow, how could that have changed Yankee history? Well, I, I think it shows a light of a, a couple of different things there. You know, one, like like Jeter thought Alex was his friend and his, your friend wouldn't say that about you. Even if you thought it, you wouldn't say it out loud to somebody about you. Uh, uh, so I think that's the part that, that really bothered him uh, because they did think that they were friends. Um, and it, it showed, it, it actually showed, it was probably the first time that we saw a lot of the insecurities uh, that revolved around Alex Rodriguez, um, because that whole thing is built around his insecurity. He's a great player who's just signed the biggest contract anybody's ever seen. Um, yet, if you go back, and I, I don't know why this wasn't included in the, with the audio bites that, you know, that you heard, but if you go back and find the article, it was what led up to that quote was Scott Boris and Alex Rodriguez not liking how Mike Lupica portrayed him in print in the Daily News. And one of the things that Jeter said, it, like it, it, it jumped the track when Jeter, when, when uh, Alex says, and you got a guy like Mike Lupica. Like I think I guess it's because Lupica um, took shots at him and Scott Boris for the big contract and jumping to Texas for that kind of money. And Boris was talking about Lupica being a guy who's changed jobs several times for money. You know, going from the Daily News to Newsday back to the Daily News and all that stuff. And Alex jumps in and says something like, "And Lupica, here you got a guy like Lupica." who praises Jeter and makes me look like an a-hole. And all of a sudden, if as you read it, as you read that, like your, your, you know, your mind just kind of stops. Like, Ooh, you cringe right there. You go, Ooh, why did he say that? Oh, that was like, that didn't sound good. And that's when he goes on to say, you know, to all those things you heard about the comparisons between him and Jeter. And like, that's, like again, that's something that if you were friends, you you wouldn't tell you know, basically a stranger, a guy who's just come into your life as a writer that you you know you don't know, you probably wouldn't say those kinds of things. I think that's where. But if you go like the genesis of that is uh, Alex and Scott being mad at Mike Lupica, and then kind of shifting the argument to saying like, why does he praise Jeter instead of me? Um, and that's. Listen, if you were friends, listen, you guys are brothers. If somebody said that to you, you know, somebody says something like that about one of you guys, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't take it. Well, maybe, I don't know you guys, maybe you do. <laughs> I'd probably it. join in. No, yeah. Uh-huh. D- depends what, depends where in our lives we are. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you one thing that I, I forgot. Uh, I don't think I got a chance to mention this when we, I got interviewed for the show, but I'm trying to, I, I, I vividly remember the group of reporters going up to Jeter's locker the morning that Esquire story broke and we were trying to get his reaction for the first time. So it was in spring training. Uh, and again, different world where no social media. I don't know if he had been made aware yet that these quotes and comments had come out or that we were going to ask him about him because my memory of it is the group of like, you know, maybe 12 of us or whatever 
walking up to Jeter's locker and him having kind of a smile on his face saying, you know, you know, what's going on now? You know, and if he had known, I don't know that he would have had that smile because what I remember is one of the other reporters, Dan Graziano, who now works, you know, does football for ESPN. He's working for the star ledger. He had written down in his notebook, the exact quote, and he is reading it back to Derek Jeter and as Dan's reading it, my memory of it is that little smile that started on Jeter's face just kind of slowly disappearing. And all he kind of kept saying over and over was like, you know, I'll, I'll have to talk to him, you know, and we're asking about, he's like, well, I guess I'll have to talk to him and kind of, you know, and kind of want to get more detail on it. So based on that, my memory tells me that he didn't know yet that that comment had come out. I don't know if that's entirely true because a lot of times they kind of just pretend that they don't know. People pretend they haven't heard anything yet to make you go through it all and ask the question that you want to ask as opposed to them just kind of saying whatever they want to say. Um, so uh, that's kind of my memory of him not having heard it yet and seeing it, which I find kind of hard to believe because if we had known it already, then you know I'm sure he had friends who, who had told him this stuff or you know people who work for the Yankees who told him this stuff. But his reaction kind of sticks out in my mind is, wow, I wonder if he hadn't heard it yet. Um, and, you know, listen, again, this just comes back to you guys, you guys were friends. And, you know, why are you saying these things if, you know, this isn't about our teams and about competition. This, it got personal. So that's, uh, you know, that's kind of my memory of it. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I, I don't, was, did the comments come out before... Jeter signed his extension. They they kind of alluded to We're about like, the same time. I think yeah, it's it it's weird timing because you think about it, like you just got paid a ton of money. Even forget friendship, even as part of the union, it, it's yeah. weird to kind of berate another player and, and talk about them that way. Well, I'll tell you, like I don't know the timing of it. I wonder if because the magazine article came out in spring training, Jeter had already signed his extension, but mm. the interview might have been done before Jeter signed his extension. Um because I think what happened was, you know, my because the timing of it, I think, was that uh, A-Rod and Nomar signed their contracts and then Jeter had to sl- kind of slide in, in between them, right? Um, I want to – I forget what Nomar's was, but it was probably like 140 or something like that, 150. Um, and then, you know, Jeter was going to slide in between Alex and Nomar for his 189 over 10. So uh, I, I do remember it was agreed to before the 2001 season, just like Alex's contract was, but Alex's contract was signed at the winter meetings, which would have been first week in December. And I, if my memory is right, it was sometime before spring training that Jeter's like, I want to say like maybe January, when they had agreed to Jeter's deal because we weren't the, 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 uh, the Yankees had a conference call to announce that extension and the interview with Jeter 
uh, was on a conference call, which meant it was before spring training and they didn't do anything in person. So I kind of feel like it would have been, I, my, my memory of it is probably the timeline is the writer probably got the comments and interviewed Alex before Jeter's extension came out, but the article itself came out after Jeter's extension. You mentioned you mentioned A Rod's insecurities that were kind of coming out, and he alludes to that himself in in this episode. He says, like, you know, like with not having a father around, like I definitely developed some insecurities. I think it's also fascinating to kind of look at Jeter also coming out in this in these interviews and saying, like, look, I I had some trust issues myself. Like if somebody wronged me once, it was hard for me to to let them back in. And it's just kind of fascinating to see the differences. And, you know, Jeter had as stable of a father presence as as you can imagine. He that people rave about that all the time. So it's interesting just how they develop their own insecurities. I guess that's just part of being human. But I think I think one of the most fascinating parts of the Jeter A-Rod revelations in these episodes is you know, the rain delay in Chicago against the White Sox in 2004 and them kind of talking things through after they were both struggling a bit to start 2004 and Jeter kind of being like, you know, what, what's your angle? What's your agenda coming over here and agreeing to go to third base? It kind of seems like Jeter was really insecure about A-Rod potentially sliding over to shortstop eventually because let's face it, he, he was the better shortstop. And it seemed like having that talk with A-Rod and him reassuring him, I'm here to win, to be third baseman. I would I would not take your spot, kind of seemed to get them on somewhat smoother ground. I thought that was a really, a really cool part of this episode. Yeah, I had never heard it before. Um I and I feel like 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 that was I think Jeter's reaction to him and all that is, you know still compounded by the article from three years earlier. Like, cause these guys, cause now these guys are no longer friends, right? Like they're, 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 they're not the friends they were because of the comments that came out. So now fast forward three years and now he's joining your team. Like how, you know, how are you supposed to take that? And yeah, it was a little window into it. And um, you know, the, the trust issues talked about, I feel one thing about it is I remember thinking that, you know, they went out of their way to downplay the sour turn their relationship had taken anytime media brought it up to them. And um, what they've been, what they're talking about in this episode now revealing tells you that everything that we in the media had talked about and asked them about and, and put out there was essentially true. They just weren't, didn't want to go there. And they were doing their best to, to pull it back when, you know, like they basically just told you there were no lies out there. You know, it was, it was, it was all out there. That was what was true. They were just for their own survival. They were trying to downplay it best they could. And it was, it became hard to escape because they couldn't keep from running into, you know, running into each other and what you're talking about that, you know, that incident uh, and everything. Uh, the other thing about it is, listen, I don't, you know, I don't cut Alex a lot of slack for a lot of the things. I think, you know, he, you know, he, he at some point, you know, had to be the one that takes responsibility for a lot of these things. But I, I do genuinely think that we tend to underplay when we talk about who these people were as adults and how they, you know, how they acted and functioned and thrived. We downplay the fact that, you know, Derek Jeter grew up with two college-educated parents, and Alex Rodriguez grew up with a single mom who worked several jobs. And, you know, it, it was just a different environment, a different upbringing. 
And, you know, you don't have to have a, you know, master's in psychology to understand that that is going to create a very big difference in how you go about things in your life and, and just how, your overall mental state. Um, I, I think, I think we don't, I think we underplay that part of their stories as to, you know, how they react and, and how, you know, how they uh, treat situations. Yeah, absolutely. And there was a ton of other great stuff in these two episodes as well. Sean, I don't know what stood out to you the most. I mean, I, I really lo- enjoyed hearing Jeter get honest about just, and, and the rest of the Yankees get honest about how emotionally drained they were during the 2001 run with everything going on with 9-11. And uh, I really enjoyed um, them talking about taking those Eric Chavez pre-game five comments to uh, to heart before the 2000 ALDS. Just what else stood out to you about these two episodes? I mean, I I think the 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 most interesting part for me, other than the Alex stuff, was probably the the end of 01 and then the start of 2002. Um, I, I think the the two like two major transformations in in that Yankee run were after 01 when you have you know Tino. Um, O'Neill and, and Brocious leave. And then after 03, when you bring in the Kevin Brown and, and A-Rod and, and, and Sheffield. So um, it, it was interesting how they definitely defined there was a shift in the clubhouse and Jeter was, you know, he had already been a leader, but, you know, eventually he becomes the captain and everything like that. So it was, it was interesting to think about. And, and, you know, Sweeney, I know you were around the team, you know, as the beat reporter through the, the dynasty, you know, at the end of the dynasty. And then, then, uh, after that, what do you, th- do you, th- did you feel there was more of a shift after Oh one or kind of going into Oh four when they brought in like Oh four was really, it's like, we're going out, we're getting Gary Sheffield, Kevin Brown, Alex Rodriguez. And they had let, you know, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, the mainstays go at that point. Yeah. I mean, listen, remember it's also in reaction to who the Red Sox had become, you know, the, even though the Yankees beat them in Oh three, um, you had, um, you know, you had, you know, uh, Manny and, and Ortiz uh, in the middle of that lineup and you knew they were still going to be good again. They went out and got Schilling and, you know, you kind of had to keep moving along and they almost got A-Rod and you, you kind of had to kind of keep moving. It was an arms race, you know, it really was between the Yankees and Red Sox trying to, you know, build bigger, higher, faster, stronger. Um, but when I think about like the changing of the guard, so to speak, with that group, what I always remember is 2002 in the Angels series, when, uh, you know, the Angels were going to, you know, the Angels were a really good team. Let's not, you know, the Yankees kind of rolled through 2002. They won 103 games. Um, they weren't really challenged inside their division. Um, they, they won pretty handily. Um, and this is a team that had been to the World Series four years in a row and came within a whisker of winning in 01. You're thinking, all right, well, this, this team's loaded. They're, they're just going to keep going right through this. Kind of forget that the, you know, the angels were the wild card team in 2002, but they won 99 games. You know, this wasn't a, you know, 84 win team that snuck into the playoffs. This was a, this is a really good team. 99 wins only good enough to win them. They, the wild card because the A's that was the money ball, the movie Oakland A's that won 20 games in a row and ended up, you know, uh, after losing Giambi, you know, Scott Hatterberg and everybody else, they win a hundred plus games. If you've seen the movie, that's the team that edged out Anaheim, the angels for, uh, for that division, but the angels have a really good team, 99 wins. 
and they go up two games to one on the Yankees in Anaheim. Uh, and after game three with the Yankees on the verge of elimination um, in a best of five division series, remember, like we kind of alluded to it, the previous two years in 2000, they're down two games to one against Oakland, came back to win. In 2001, they're down two games to none against Oakland, come back to win, flip play, that series. Um, so the next year, the very next year, 2002, when they're down two games to one, after they lost game three, big crowd around Jeter's locker, and somebody asked him, I remember, about the idea of, well, you know, you guys have been here before, right? So you can, you know, you know what it takes to, to, to come back from this. And he looked right up and said, not this group. We haven't. Not this group. What, I mean, listen, he was there. Bernie was there. Um, Posada was there. But O'Neill, Tino Martinez had both been replaced. Jason Giambi had come in. He had not been in this situation before. In fact, he was on the other side of two of those comebacks because he was with Oakland. So the idea of coming from behind in a playoff series, Jeter understood that even though he had been there before and several of his teammates have, there were a lot of new faces that had not been in that position before and how they were going to respond, how they were going to react. He was not ready to just say, yes, we've been there before. He knew that there was a different group of people here. That's what stood out to me about kind of this transition. This is a new group now. And as you know, it obviously took the Yankees, um, you know, well, they got, they, they lost in that series to, uh, to Anaheim. Uh, they needed game seven to get past the Red Sox the following year. Uh, they blew the 3-0 in 04. And it was, it was not the same. And, you know, Buster Olney, who's all over this series uh, in the episode you've seen, you know, he wrote a book called The Last Night of the Yankees Dynasty, which is about game seven in Arizona in 2001. And as you see how it plays out after that, you know, that's, you know, it would probably feel like Jeter knew that it turned at that moment, too. Yeah, that's also a fantastic book. We love it. Uh, we've got a couple minutes left. Sean, I don't know anything else you want to mention that really stuck out, I think, to me. Uh, it was funny kind of hearing Jeter talk about from the you know, perspective of facing the Mets and Yankees, kind of like how a lot of Yankee fans felt at the time. He was like, oh, it's just the Mets talking about the Yankees mindset in the 2000 World Series. And then talking about the 2003 ALCS, he was like, well, it's the Red Sox. We were just kind of waiting for them to to screw up. I thought that was funny to kind of hear that the Yankees, even in their own clubhouse, kind of shared similar sentiments that you might have heard on callers on WFAN or, or other Yankee fans. Stuff that he probably, you know, that he wouldn't publicly admit, you know, back at the time too. Like I, and I tweeted this story out the other day. I remember uh, dealing with the Mets in the Subway Series. This is a guy who destroyed the Mets. And, you know, he played almost 90. If you count the World Series, he played over 90 games against the Mets in his career. And he hit like, like 360 or 370 against them, right? Uh, in May of 2014, I, uh, the week before the Subway Series, we were in Milwaukee. It was his last year. He obviously announced before the season started that it was going to be his last year. And I remember standing in front of his locker in Milwaukee and we we're just talking about like how, you know, he talked about wanting to own a team. Right. And after he was done and how, you know, how that was going to work. And I looked at him and I just said, so man, I don't know why you want to, I don't know. I don't know why you want to own another team so bad. You already own the Mets. And, and he didn't laugh. He looked at me and went, man, why you got to say that? Because <laughs> he knew that there was a Mets series coming up 
in a couple of days and that he thought I was jinxing him by saying that. Um, so I, I had a good laugh over that one. He did not. Um, cause he always thought I was jinxing him anytime I'd bring up numbers like that. But yeah, it's interesting to sit there and say, listen, when you win all the time, like the, the Yankees did, especially as the Red Sox before 2004, it's not hard. You know, that team fed off confidence, you know, and when you saw the episode about 1998, you know, that, that team just went to work every day thinking that they were going to win. They, they just, and if they lost the day before they were ticked off about it and they just come back and, you know, okay, we're going to, you know, now we're really going to beat you today. Uh, now the group changed a little bit as we just talked about, but some of those players still had that mentality of not so much that, you know, I think they're making light of the idea that I think he makes light of the idea that, Hey, they're the Mets or, you know, Hey, they're going to screw it up. You know, he obviously knows how talented those guys, those players were and those teams were, but I think it spoke to his, to his own confidence in what he could do, what he and his group of teammates could do. You know, they were not intimidated. They never went in thinking they were the underdog. They always felt like they were going to win. Yeah, it's been great reliving all this stuff. We'll be some in for some darker times next week when we go over 2004 and a little bit beyond that. But Sweeney, thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk more after the next couple episodes uh, next week. But it's been a fantastic series so far. All right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it.